morning's passage will be Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. If you'd like to follow along in your pew Bible, it's page 1073. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Hear the word of the Lord. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man be also ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. (coughs) Most famous uh, author... Living in the 1930s was William Somerset Maugham. His friends called him Willie. Some of you may have heard of him. He was a novelist. He was a a playwright. He wrote short stories. Uh, His play, The Constant, has been through thousands of stagings all across the world. Uh, His novel on human bondage is a classic in literature. Uh, He was a man, though, that lived for his own personal preferences and tastes, his own comforts, his own uh, sexual perversions. And at the age of 91, in 1965, he was 91, still incredibly rich, wealthy, though he had not written a word in years, uh, he received over 300 fan letters a day, incredibly, or a week, uh, an incredibly popular man. Famous worldwide. And with all that fame and with all the wealth and notoriety that he had gained for himself in his long life, what did his life look like? What, what did life look like for Willie as his friends knew him? Well, the London Times carried an excerpt from his nephew, Robin, speaking about the end of his life. His nephew Robin said this, I looked around the drawing room at the immensely valuable furniture and the pictures and objects that Uncle Willie's success had enabled him to acquire. I remembered the villa itself and the wonderful garden that I could see through the windows, a fabulous setting on the edge of the Mediterranean worth $1.2 million. Uncle Willie had 11 servants, 
including its cook, Annette, who was the envy of all other millionaires on the Riviera. He dined on silver plates, waited on by Marius, his butler, and Henry, his footman. But none of it meant anything to him any longer. The following afternoon, I found Uncle Willie reclining on his sofa, peering through his spectacles at a Bible, which had very large print. And he looked horribly aged, and his face was grim. And he said, I've been reading the Bible you gave me, and I've come across a quotation. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? I must tell you, my dear nephew, that I used to hang that text on my bedroom when I was a child. Of course, it's all a bunch of bunk, but the thought is still quite interesting all the same. His nephew Robin goes on in the article to describe how the empty and bitter old man repeatedly fell into horrible terrors in the final days that he had on earth. He would hear him from his room crying out, go away, go away, I'm not ready, I'm not dead yet, it's not my time yet, I'm not dead, I tell you, go away. He was a man that had gained the world and forfeited his soul. And in our text this morning, an incredibly heavy text, Jesus gives us a stern warning against doing that very thing. In today's text, we find the middle of the book of Mark. I told you a couple weeks ago that we would be seeing the closing of Act 1, if it were a play, and the transition into Act 2. And the theology that Mark has been showing us, what we've been being taught in the first part of the book, uh, we're going to see transition a bit in the second part of the book. And remember, Mark has been writing to show us that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the one that came to save his people from their sins. And we see this in his teaching, his actions, that he has authority to teach, unlike any of the religious leaders of the day, that he has an authority over nature and demons and even death. And in all of that, Mark has been showing us that Jesus is God's Messiah. We're about to meet the second half of Mark's gospel, the dynamic second half that is really the turning point in many ways, uh, the pinnacle of the text of Mark uh, in, our, in our text this morning. And it's going to quickly and drastically turn toward Jerusalem. Everything from this point is going to be uh, headed towards Jerusalem where Jesus, this one who's been shown to be the Son of God, will be betrayed. He'll be uh, strapped to a post and beaten with a whip to within an inch of his life. He'll be nailed to a bloody cross where he will die. I gave you a spoiler two weeks ago and told you that the pinnacle of this first act that we'll conclude today is the confession that Peter will make that you've heard read this morning. And so what we're studying this morning, Peter's confession and then Jesus' teaching around it, um, what we're studying today is of greatest practical importance for us. It has direct implications for our lives that are eternally significant, things that, that will make a difference for our eternity. Um, and so the, t the text today, I believe, would have us answer three questions. Three questions that were presented with in the text in the, the second half of chapter 8 of Mark's gospel. First question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Second question, what did Jesus come to do? What did Jesus come to do? And third question, what does Jesus require of us? What does Jesus require of us? So this first question we find in verses 27 through 30, uh, who is Jesus? And that seems like a simple enough answer, uh, our question to be asking in, in church. 
answer. It's a question that we have answered all the time in Sunday school and Bible studies. A question that we should know the answer to, but I don't want to assume that we have the answer to. It's the most pertinent and important question that any of us could be asking today. It's this question. Who is Jesus? We know that the question's important. We know that the question for us is important because of who posed the question in the text. It was Jesus. It was Jesus' initiative that brought forth this question. The disciples, again, are on the road with Jesus. They're traveling, doing ministry, probably in a small village around the region of Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus actually asked this question in two questions. He gets at it by asking two questions. You see the first one in verse 27, 28. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. The reply from the, the disciples at this question is, is quick. It's almost, uh, you can imagine it almost being simultaneous, that all the disciples begin to speak up at once, giving these different answers. And what we find is that the average person was pretty impressed with Jesus. If, if, if the, the disciples' answer to the question is accurately reflecting the culture around them, they're, they're pretty impressed with his abilities, with Jesus' character, with his prophetic status. And yet, they have the slightest idea that he was the Messiah. These are all really nice compliments. If you're a normal guy, if you're a normal man, just a, a human being, these are all really nice things to say about someone, to compare them to the people that these disciples just named there's one problem, though. Jesus is not just a normal guy. He's not just a normal man. He's God. And so they think that they're honoring him by, with these assumptions that he may be one of the prophets or Elijah. But they're actually misrepresenting him, even denying who he really is. And it's at this point Jesus has their attention. He's given them a softball, right? Who do people say that I am? And they've responded quickly. And then he ups the ante with the second question. Verse 29, he asked them, but who do you say that I am? You that have been following me, you that have seen all of this ministry and these miracles, who do you say that I am? I wish this morning that I could come to each and every one of you and just take a moment and look you right in the eyeballs and ask the same question, who is Jesus? Not, not because... I want to quiz you or play some game of Bible trivia or embarrass you or put you on the spot to answer some questions so that I can show you how wrong you are, but because the answer to this question is the most vital question that you could be answering today. Who is Jesus? Not just, not just what you've heard about Jesus, not just what some people would say about Jesus, but who do you personally believe Jesus to be? And perhaps even in our text, there was a pause or hesitation because they're not blurting out like they did the first time, all the answers at once. But, as you can guess, the motor mouth of the group, Peter, the one that's always speaking up, the one that's always putting his foot in his mouth, he speaks up for the group. You see it as we continue verse 29. Peter answered him, You are the Christ. You are the Christ. And that's precisely the answer that Jesus was looking for. We know this because in Matthew's account, in the Gospel of Matthew, we see this, this, uh, this response from Jesus, this joyous exclamation from Jesus after he hears Peter's answer. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but Matthew chapter 16, verses 17 through 19. Uh, Peter's confessed that you are the Christ, and Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is an incredible response from Jesus. A tremendous affirmation from Jesus. This is exactly the right answer, Peter. Why didn't Mark include this if Matthew did? Why didn't Mark's gospel record this response from Jesus if Matthew's gospel did? Well, I think we should ask questions like that when we read through the gospels and we see things that are slightly different. It doesn't mean that one's right and one's wrong. They're different accounts of the same story. Remember who's the, the, the key eyewitness here for Mark as he's writing? It's Peter. And so perhaps in, in, in humility... Peter made no mention of this incredible response from Jesus so as to not make himself the hero of the story, the one with the incredible right answer. I don't know. That's, that's just speculation on my part. But if that is the case, think how incredible that is to see this transformation in Peter's life, the Peter that we're about to see in the text that you've already heard read, the one who rebukes the Messiah, the Savior of the world, that in a few years later he would be recording the account of the story and his humility is such, the sanctification in his life is such that he's now not even wanting to be the hero that has the right answer. I think that should cause us to say, thank you, Lord, for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that you would transform us, you wouldn't leave us where we're at. So if this is the right answer to the question, if, if Peter has nailed it, if you will, and given the right answer, who is Jesus? Peter says he's the Christ. This is the confession. What is it that Peter's saying? Why is Jesus, in Matthew's gospel, so incredibly uh, excited that this is the answer he gave? This affirmation of this answer. What is it that Peter's saying in his confession? Well, for starters, he's not giving Jesus another name or a last name. Uh, if you've not been raised in church, if church is new to you and the Bible's new to you, uh, you may think that Jesus was his first name and Christ was like his last name. So like on his school report card, it would have been Christ, Jesus, last name, first name. That's not the case. Jesus was his name. The, the, the name of the Son of God was Jesus, and Christ is his title. Christ is his title. Christ is the Greek way of saying the Hebrew uh, title of Messiah. So Christ, Greek, Hebrew, Messiah, same word, same idea, and they both mean anointed one. He was God's anointed one. He was the one that God had anointed and sent to be the Savior of the world, the Messiah, the Christ. So Peter is identifying that Jesus is that one, the one that Israel had been waiting upon since the time of King David, the king who would come and restore and every, everything and make everything right. Really the one that Israel had been waiting on since Eve and uh, the, 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 the prophecy that was announced during the curse that there would be one who would come and crush the head of the serpent. But in Israelite history, the people were waiting on a Messiah that would come and overthrow their a political oppressor, primarily Rome. They're, they're, the, the Israelites are waiting on someone to come and, and gather God's people from exile and dispersion and bring them all back to Jerusalem and establish Jerusalem as the center and priority of the world so that it would be a, a picture of God's perfect reign. That's what they're wanting to happen. That's what they're thinking the Messiah would come and do. And so when Peter's confessing here that Jesus is the Messiah, he and the other disciples are still thinking that this is what he's doing. They're failing to see the way in which Jesus would restore. Yes, he's coming to restore, but unlike uh, they ever imagined he would do. And seeing this confession, 
seeing that the confession is right, that he is saying the right thing, yet not fully understanding, not understanding even what he just said, Jesus tells them to keep quiet about it. You see it in verse 30. He strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And this makes sense. You would, you would not want someone going and confessing something that they don't fully understand, that they're, that, they're not, that they're not understanding rightly, that they're misunderstanding. And he understood that they didn't get it yet. They were not fully arrived there yet. It's a strong warning. It's a command. Sort of like when you get serious with your kids. You're like, hey, listen to me. Listen to me. Don't go and tell anybody about this. You don't get it yet. You're not there. Jesus knew that there were powerful forces uh, political and religious leaders that were conspiring against him, coming together against him, um, and he was not at this point wanting to force a confrontation. He was not at this point ready to be confronted by these religious and political leaders and put on trial because it was not yet time. Why wasn't it time? Jesus has already said this is what he's coming to do. Why was it not yet time? Well, that leads to our second question because the disciples are not fully understanding why he came. The purpose in which Jesus came to the earth, which leads to our second question, what did Jesus come to do? And that's where he goes next in the text. Look at verses 31 through 32. It says, and he began to teach them. Understanding that they didn't get it, he begins to teach them. This is glorious grace, that he would not leave them in ignorance, that this morning we're not left in ignorance. He's given us his word. He begins to teach them. That the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, we'll rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Verse 32 says that he spoke plainly with them, that he laid it all out there. That as we would say, he didn't beat around the bush about it. He went straight to the heart and, and spoke plainly about what was about to happen. That he was the Christ? Yes, that is true, Peter. That he was the anointed one, the Messiah? Yes. But he was also the suffering Messiah. He began to tell them plainly that he would be dying. He would suffer and die. He begins to tell them of his resurrection, that, that, that he would raise from the dead. And this was, uncom- this was incomprehensible to them. Remember, the disciples at this point, they, they couldn't fathom this. He was the one that had conquered death and raised Jairus' daughter from, from dead, from being dead. How could he, the Messiah, actually die? This, this, this made no sense to them. And so let's look at it in more detail. He says the Son of Man. And some of us hear that and we think, well, Jesus is just saying that he's a son of man, that he's human. Well, that's true. He was fully human. But there's more going on here. When Jesus says that, he's the, that the Son of Man must suffer, he's actually pointing us back to the Old Testament to the scriptures for these disciples, the Bibles that they knew. Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, there's a reference to, in Daniel chapter 7, one like a son of man. And if you read, if you continue reading in Daniel 7, it's this person, this one like a son of man, who's a divine savior, a divine messianic figure, a Christ figure, who would come with angels and make everything right. And Jesus is pulling no punches here. He's saying as clearly as possible, emphatically, he's saying that son of man in Daniel that you've read about as Jewish young men growing up in Jewish families, you would have heard about, that that son of man in Daniel is me. That son of man is standing right before your very eyes. But look what else he says. He says the son of man must suffer. Before this moment, 
No one in Israel had connected suffering with the role of the Messiah. No one had connected suffering with this Messiah figure in Daniel 7. Sure, Old Testament prophecies mentioned a servant who would suffer. We see that in Isaiah 43, 44, Isaiah 53. No one's connecting, though, that this suffering servant would also be the Messiah. Why? Because it made no sense. The Messiah was supposed to defeat evil. The Messiah was supposed to, to conquer injustice and make everything right. How could the Messiah do this if he himself was going to be suffering and dying? It was self-defeating. It didn't make sense. It was an oxymoron. And so by using the word must here, Jesus is indicating that he's planning to die. He's voluntarily choosing death. He's not merely predicting that it'll happen. Hey, guys, one day I'm going to die. No, he's saying, I'm choosing to die. I'm laying down my life. This is the reason why I came. And that's probably why Peter gets so mad, right? It's one thing to say, I'm, I'm going to fight for you. I remember what they're thinking, a Messiah who's going to conquer politically, militarily. I'm going to fight for you, and I, I'm going to die in battle. That's one thing. That's heroic. What Jesus just said is, this is the reason I came. I came to die. It's the purpose for which I left heaven and came to die, to suffer and die. And that's why the second Peter hears this. He turns and rebukes Jesus. The verb here in the text for rebuke is actually the same word that's used when Jesus would rebuke demons. We've seen Jesus do that in the book of Mark. He will, he will cast these demons out and rebuke them. It means that Peter here is barking at Jesus with the strongest possible language you could imagine for rebuking another human being. Imagine that. Peter rebuking the Savior of the world, the creator of the world. Why is he so beside himself? Especially after what he just announced, that Jesus is the Christ, he's the Messiah. Well, from the time that Peter was knee-high to a grasshopper, growing up in a Jewish home, he would have been told by mom and dad that the Messiah would come and make everything right. And Jesus has just contradicted that. After confessing that he is truly the Messiah, the Christ, he's just said, I'm going to die. I'm the Messiah. I am king. But I came not to live, but to die. I came not to seize power by force, but to lose it. I came not to, to rule with a scepter, but to serve on a cross. And that's precisely how we will defeat evil and make everything right. A king who dies is not what they expected. It's not what they wanted. It's not what they were hoping for, but it's exactly what they desperately needed, exactly what we desperately need, a king who will die. And Jesus, notice, notice this. This is, this is incredible. Jesus did not say that the Son of Man would suffer. Look in your text. Look in, look in the Bibles. Look in front of you in the Word of God. Jesus did not say the Son of God, the Son of Man would suffer. He says that the Son of Man must suffer. The word must here in verse 31 modifies the whole sentence. Everything in the sentence uh, must be applied the word must. Jesus must suffer. He must be rejected. Jesus must be killed. Jesus must be resurrected. This is one of the most powerful and scary and significant words in all of human history. I'm not overstating that. That Jesus must suffer. That he would not just say, I've come to die, but that I have come and I must die. It was an absolute necessity that I come and die. Why is that the case? Why is it absolutely necessary that Jesus die? Why would he say he must die? Well, think about this. When someone wrongs you, someone does something that is an offense against you, a debt has been established, and that debt has to be paid. 
practical illustration or example of this. A friend borrows your car. They need your car for the weekend and accidentally, they weren't doing anything necessarily wrong. Maybe there was ice on the road, we'll pretend, since it's a warm, sunny day outside. Ice on the road and they accidentally wreck your car into the side of a tree. One of two things can happen as a result. Either one, you can make them pay. You can say to him, hey, uh, talk to the body shop. It's going to be $2,000 to fix my car, and so pay up, right? You can do that. That's option one. Or option two, you can say, I forgive you. It's okay. Man, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I forgive you. It's okay. But if you choose scenario two to say, I forgive you, it's okay, what happens with the $2,000? Either one, you're going to pay for it yourself to fix your car, so you absorb the cost of that, uh, that mistake, that accident, that offense, that debt. Or you can say, I'll just leave the damages in the car, which is not fixing the problem because when you go to resell it or trade it in or whatever, that's $2,000 worth of depreciation of the vehicle, probably more than that in the culture we live in. So it doesn't just go away. You're paying for it. You're absorbing the cost one way or another. So by saying to your friend, I forgive you, you're essentially saying, I'll take that debt. I'll pay for that to be fixed. Either your friend pays or you absorb the cost personally. And this was an economic example, but it happens every day in life too. Someone robs you of an opportunity at work. Someone steals your happiness. Someone damages your reputation. Someone takes away from you something that can't be ever gotten back. A debt has been created. Justice has been violated. The offender owes a debt, and it must be paid. And if we know that forgiveness, so follow with me, even thinking through this example of the car, if we know that forgiveness, man, don't worry about it, I got this. If we know that forgiveness always entails someone else having to pay the debt, suffering from someone else, rectifying the wrong can't just be ignored, it's going to be paid by someone, then it should come as no surprise to us when God says, the only way that I can forgive the sins of the human race is for me to suffer myself, to take that debt, to take that suffering. Either way, the debt's going to be paid. The penalty for your sin, the penalty for your mistakes, your debts will cost suffering. There is a penalty for sin. And either you will pay for it, or God says, I will take it. I will take that debt, and I'll deal with it. And the only way for God to pardon us and not judge us and make us pay that debt is for him to absorb it on the cross in his own son. And so, friends, hear these most profound words in the human language. Jesus says, I must suffer. There are no other options here, church family. Either we will pay that debt or he must suffer. Danny Aiken says this in his commentary. This is where the law of God and the love of God will meet. This is where judgment and grace will kiss. Rob the word must of its meaning and you will empty the gospel and the cross of its glory. I think so often, church family, we miss this because we, not even on purpose, see our salvation as something that we have to earn or accomplish or do. There's nothing we did. He must suffer because that's the only other option. Either we will suffer eternity in hell under the wrath of God or Christ has suffered for us. So a couple questions. Did you know that? Do, do you believe that this morning, that he suffered and died so that you will not have to? 
that every person in this room under the sound of my voice is either in one of two positions. Either one, still under the wrath of God and will pay for your debt, or Christ has paid that debt for you, and you've received that gift of salvation by repentance and faith in Christ. That's the only two options. It's the only two options for the people in this room. It's the only two options for the people of this world. That's why we do mission. That's why we go to the remotest parts of the world, because there are people still under the wrath of God paying for their sin debt. Have you repented of your sins and asked him to be Lord of your life? This is not the invitation, but there's always that invitation for you. If you have breath in your lungs, there's that invitation for you. Come to Christ. Repent of your sins and follow him. Remember, Peter has just rebuked Jesus. He's just scolded him. He's just told him that that is crazy talk, Jesus. Verse 33, Jesus, we see what happens next. But turning and seeing the disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. Now, it's the Savior who is furious. It's the Savior who's doing the rebuking. And as Peter rebuked Jesus for claiming that he must die, Jesus turns and he sees the disciples shaking their heads, agreeing with this, that, that they all think that this is ludicrous, that Jesus would die. And this explosive, explosive rebuke was meant for Peter, but the other disciples are receiving it as well. They're hearing this. Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. These are the harshest words that Jesus ever spoke to a genuine, true follower of Christ. Peter says, this, this rebuke for Jesus, and Jesus takes him and rebukes him, scolds him with the same level of severity. Again, the same, the same, same way in which he would rebuke demons earlier in Mark's gospel. Why? Because Peter had unknowingly spewed demonic doctrine. doctrine. Peter had unknowingly spewed damnable heresy similar to the way that jesus faced temptation in the wilderness you remember at the beginning of his ministry in mark chapter one jesus goes into the wilderness and he's tempted by satan and you remember satan tempts him he tempts jesus to abandon the will of god the father and to take an easier way that's ultimately what satan is tempting jesus to do and it's a terrible temptation in the wilderness right because jesus knew the purpose for which he came he knew why he had come to earth he knew the torture and the pain and the agony that awaited him at Calvary. And so that temptation in the wilderness was no small thing. And now Jesus is even closer to that suffering. He's uh, chronologically closer. The time is getting near when that suffering will take place. He's geographically closer. He's making his way to Jerusalem. And now Peter is saying that same thing, essentially. He's hearing the, the temptation of Satan from the wilderness in the, the voice and mouth of Peter, one of his own disciples. That's why his response is so strong. Peter, you don't understand. This is what has to happen. If there's any hope for humanity, if there's any hope for the world, I must suffer and die. Hear me clearly, church family. You cannot embrace a Jesus of your choosing. You can't just confess any Christ that you want to confess. If you confess Christ, it must be the suffering Messiah that he demonstrated himself to be. It must be the bloody and beaten man that's hung on a cross on Calvary. It may be easier for us to see this truth now, right? The disciples, they, they didn't understand. They hadn't seen it yet. It hadn't happened yet. They were, they, were, they were arriving slowly at what this meant for them. But we've seen the cross. We've seen the resurrection. We have the full word of God before us. We know uh, what Jesus is talking about when he says that he must die. He must die and raise again. 
So in one sense, it's easier for us now. We do have the full revelation of God. We do know what God is talking about when he sends his son to die for our sin. But there's more required. Yes, we must rightly confess who Christ is. And yes, we must know why Jesus came. We must understand why he came and why he had to die. But we must also embrace the same suffering. And that's the part that's not so easy. We see it in our final question of the text. Question number three, what does Jesus require of us? Look at verses 34 through 38. We'll start in verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. There have been books written on this one verse alone. We could spend all day discussing the implications of this statement from Jesus. But what Jesus is essentially saying is, Since I am king, You've confessed it rightly, Peter. I am king. And since I am king and I am going to a cross where I will die, so you must too. If you are going to follow me, you must go to a cross. A cross awaits everyone who follows Jesus. And you're not going to hear that. That's not easy to hear. That's not easy to swallow and digest. You're not going to hear that from certain preachers that preach a fluffy gospel and have massive followings of people. But do you know that? That's what awaits every person who will be a follower of Christ is a cross. Jesus leads in the procession. He is carrying his cross, and we as his followers step in his footsteps, marching with our own crosses. We march to our death. Well, what are our crosses? I think that's an important question to ask in the text. Jesus says we must take up our cross. What are our crosses? You've probably heard that before. That's a phrase people like to use. I mean, even folks that are not uh, Christians or, or go to church, they'll, they'll say, you know, this is just my cross to bear. You've heard that before, right? That's commonly used. This is my cross to bear. You know, I just, this, is, this is my struggle. It's not talking about a trial or a struggle just for being a trial or a struggle. The biggest misinterpretation of this text is that, that, that whatever trial or, or difficulty comes into your life is your cross. Don't do that. Don't make that mistake. Our cross is not simply a trial or a hardship, like a crazy boss at work that just always seems to be bearing down on you. Man, I, my cross to bear, oh, so-and-so, they're, they're just a slave driver of a boss. Our cross to bear is not an unfair professor at school that just seems to have it out for you and, and you can't, can't ever do anything right by him. And it's just my cross to bear. That's not a cross. Your bossy mother-in-law who, who always seems to be on your case about something, that's not a cross to bear. These, are, these may be a pain in your neck. <laughs> it may be something you hate that you have to deal with. But they're not a cross to bear. The cross here, notice in the text, the cross here comes specifically from walking in Christ's steps and embracing the gospel. That's what he says. If you go on, it comes from bearing disdain. It comes from bearing rejection because you've embraced Christ and the narrow way of the cross. It comes from living out the ethics of Jesus in your workplace, the ethics of Jesus in your home when others see you and they don't understand why you would have that kind of a, a rule for yourself, a, 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 a tradition to follow. It comes from embracing Christ above all else, making him priority over everything else in your life, even though the world looks at that and says that's foolish. It comes from humbling yourself in difficult circumstances. It comes from bearing the name of Jesus Christ when it's difficult and when you even have to endure persecution. Our crosses, listen closely, our crosses come from and are proportionate to 
our commitment to Christ. I'm going to say that again. Our crosses come from and are proportionate to our commitment to Christ. And you may be like, oh, that went straight over my head, Matt. I, 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 don't, I don't know what you mean there. It means this, that difficulties in themselves, difficulties in your life, are not proof that you are cross-bearing. Difficulties in your life, for Christ's sake, are, diff- are proof that you are cross-bearing. So ask yourself this morning. Am I bearing my cross? Am I taking up my cross daily and following him? Well, I don't know if you are, but if you look at the circumstances of your life, are you walking through difficulties right now? Not just because everybody goes through difficulties because we live in a fallen world, but are you walking through difficulties right now because you're on the hills of Jesus? You're following after him, and because he had to bear a cross, you're taking blows and hits too. Let's continue. What does he require of us? Take up your cross? Yes, we're taking up a cross. What else? Verse 35. For whoever loses life, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Mark is intentional here with the word that he uses for life in the Greek. The word is psyche. And we get the English word that we use all the time, psychology, from it. Jesus is saying, or Mark is saying here, he's intentionally using this word to signify uh, your personality, your life, your selfhood, your identity. And so what he's saying is, Jesus is, is teaching us, don't build your identity, don't build yourself, but don't build who you are on gaining the things of this world. We see that in his next, next uh, phrase, the next thing he says, verse 36 and 37. But what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? And this goes against the grain of every culture that's ever existed. Every culture, regardless of what era of time it was from, says that if you acquire these things, if you do this or accomplish this in life, then you'll be somebody, then you'll have an identity, you'll, you'll have worth. Traditional culture, like for most of human history, has said you're a nobody unless you gain respectability in culture. Unless people around you would respect you and and you do that by having a legacy of a family and a wife and children and grandchildren. If you have those things, if you leave that kind of a legacy, you've done something. You've accomplished something with life. Individualistic cultures like ours in the last generation have said that you're a nobody unless you gain a, a fulfilling job that will for you produce income and wealth and money and reputation and status. Not so much that a family would, would demonstrate your legacy, but, but what you do on this earth as you seize opportunities and moments. Regardless of the differences in the details, every culture has said this thing, this fill in the blank, this thing will make you someone. It will give you an identity. And Jesus says none of those will work. Even if you were to gain the whole world, he says, it wouldn't be enough. Every, 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 every philosophy and thought for life and how to be somebody fails, and even if you were to gain everything, you would have lost your soul. Even religion, he says, is not enough to base an identity in. This is what, this is what he's saying. I, you can't just say, well, I've been immoral, I've been a bad person, I've been a failure, so now I'm going to go to church, I'm going to be a good person, I'm going to be a moral person, and then I'll know that I'm spiritual, and that'll be my identity. And Jesus says, no, you can't just trade one performance-based identity for another one. You can't just trade those off. Jesus says, I want you to find a whole new way. I want you to be a whole new person, a new self, to base your identity on me and the gospel, he says. 
Note that. Note in the text. If you look back in the Bibles, in your Bibles with me, it says that he loses his life for my sake and the gospel's. He's showing us that you can't be foggy here. You can't be muddy with this. You can't be uh, unclear on what we're talking about. You can't just say, oh, I see, I understand now. I can't base my life around money because that's fleeting, or I can't base my life around my parents' approval because that'll come and go. I, I can't build my life around my career or, or, or my, my wife. So I understand I must build my life around God. He's saying, no, 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 even that is, is not enough. That's too vague. Everyone has a God. Everyone has something they're building their lives around. You can make anything your God. That's why he clarifies for it. It must be. Your identity must be Christ and the cross, the bloody piece of wood that Jesus died on to redeem you, the gospel. That must be your identity. So when it comes to our lives, our identities, who we are at our core, this is what Jesus is saying. Losers are keepers and keepers are losers. Lose your life and you will keep it. Better, he will keep it. But try to keep your life, try to build it on the things that you think are important, try to keep it for yourself, and you will ultimately lose it. Ask our friend Willie that we started the, the text with this morning, the illustration that we started with. Verse 38, probably some of the most scary words in the Scripture. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of his Father, with the holy angels. John Piper on this verse says this. What is the opposite of being ashamed of somebody? Being proud of them. Admiring them. Not being embarrassed to be seen with them. Loving to be identified with them. So Jesus is saying, if you're embarrassed by me and the price that I paid for you, if you're not proud of me and you don't cherish me and, and what I did for you on the cross... If you want to put yourself, listen close, if you want to put yourself with the goats that value their reputation in the goat herd more than they value me, then that's the way I'll view you when I come. I'll be ashamed of you, and you will perish with the people who consider me an embarrassment. And this is not a guilt trip. I think so often we hear texts like this and we think, well, i got to witness, because if I don't witness, like I'm ashamed of Jesus, when Jesus comes back, he's going to be ashamed of me. This is just an indicator for us, a litmus test of where our love is, where our identity is. Jesus is showing us we must take up our cross and follow him. And that if we try to hoard life, if we try to build life around our thoughts, our ideas, our priorities, we will ultimately lose it. We must confess Christ as the suffering Messiah and Savior. We must understand and believe that he came to die. He had to. He must die so that our debt could be paid. We must take up the identity that he requires, the cross of Christ and the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. That you've not left us with a, a foggy or muddy understanding of who you are. You've proclaimed in the scriptures that you are the son of God. And that you died so that we did not have to pay our sin debt, our penalty. God, help us to embrace and cherish and worship you for that truth this morning. And if there's someone here, Father, that's never repented of their sins and followed after you, I pray today would be the day that they make that decision. Meet us in this moment. Do work on our hearts. 
Help us to see our need, demonstrate our dependence upon you. Help us to respond to the word we've heard. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. If you would stand, church family, let's respond in singing. Let's worship the Lord together for the good news of the gospel, for the identity that we have in Christ. Now, we don't have to spend life on fleeting things. We get to invest our lives for the kingdom of God that will never end. That's really good news.